Hello there, and welcome to the Investigative Economics Podcast. I'm your host, uh, Llewellyn Jones. Uh, today, it's uh, episode three, All Things California. Um, California is a very large state, and it's uh, when you look at the numbers, it always ranks towards the top of just the, the highest expenditures, the most people, the most employees, the most everything. It's one of the biggest states. Uh, you know, It's up there with Texas of just uh, ranking at the top. Um, but when you uh, sort of take into account, you know, how many people live there as sort of a per capita basis, a lot of those numbers disappear, but not all of them. But in a lot of ways, California remains unique uh, and a lot of interesting things happen there. Uh, and that's why we've had a number of stories that are about California or sort of revolve around California. And uh, we'll cover a number of them today. There's a few different topics that uh, really stand out, particularly Healthcare in California, campaign finance issues in California, as well as um, uh, uh, healthcare, campaign finance, and energy. Energy is the big one. And in fact, well, let's jump right into it with energy. Uh, that right now, California is paying some of the highest prices in the country for uh, for electricity, and it's actually paying uh, we, the story that we covered a number a few months back. It's actually about how the amount it's it's paying the prices it, it's uh, on average are similar to what it was back in the Enron age, and this is a, like right now you know there's all these stories about Europe paying ridiculous prices because of the war in Ukraine and the sanctions on Russia, and uh, that they're putting all these restrictions in about you know can you run your AC you know um, you know all these other things about they're limiting to make sure people aren't using energy as as much as they can, and coming coming out today that Gavin Newsom is putting restrictions on uh, or re- requesting that Californians you know limit their AC to seventy eight degrees, and right now I mean it's a sort of uh, intersection of a lot of different issues that are going on uh, that. You know, the grid is being drained. You know, there's more people, more people driving electric vehicles. There's a lot more uh, electricity being taken out of the system. And at the same time, uh, there's the hydroelectric with the drought going on. There's not a lot of energy coming from hydroelectric sources. And I know how much in California comes from Lake Mead. I mean, a lot more of that's for Nevada. Um, But they do have a number of other hydroelectric dams. Um, that are kind of suffering at the moment. But even before all of this, even before the droughts and you know the sort of uptick in electric vehicles, uh, the prices that Californians were paying for electricity were at all-time highs. And it was higher than it was during the Enron uh, peak. And I mean... That that drew so much outrage that you know why is that uh, why is that not as much of a concern right now? I mean, everybody knows that you know sort of uh, California is very adamant about the drive towards you know reliance on renewable energy, and that's uh, you know that's and they've, they've been uh, pushing towards that quite considerably, and that while and solar and winds can provide a lot, uh, and there's a lot of subsidies for that purposes, uh, that it's, it comes at a cost. Um, you know, it gets into, you know, how much people are interested in, you know, you know, carbon neutral uh, energy production versus, I mean, you can't, you know, pay an infinite amount of money for electricity. Um, 
And a lot of uh, decisions they've made in the last few years, uh, they've you know shut down gas storage facilities, shut down nuclear uh, plants. Uh, I think the Diablo Canyon is the one that's on the edge of being shut down as well. And that's probably leading to a lot of these high prices. Now, but getting back to it, it's also a, the story is also a good chance to look back at what it was about the Enron fiasco that uh, was so scandalous. And I think if you look back at it, uh, you know, Enron, you know, was the the, the bet noir of the whole thing that they set up, they pushed for deregulation of energy markets in California. They were running these online energy trading uh, sites that w- they thought would, you know, uh, if you re- read through what they pushed for, that they thought they, they would control everything and everything would be hunky-dory. Um if you look into the details of the reports that came out, you realize it's not just Enron. There are a lot of energy companies that were accused and found guilty of, you know, manipulation of companies that uh, that intentionally shut down their services to to drive up demand, to drive up the prices, and uh, and the other ones that were sort of, uh, you know, just market manipulation all over the place. At a time, uh, Enron, I mean, they, they're providing the uh, the platform to do all this trading, and they had all these names for techniques that they would also uh, use. And this is not getting into the sort of the accounting issues that the, the eventually uh, brought a lot of scrutiny or sort of their internet trading, uh, internet uh, distribution trading that uh, led to their collapse. Um but that uh, they were the sort of the center of it all for all these where these trades were happening. And Enron actually was okay with some of the price spikes. There also there's, what happened at the time was there was a drought, similar to what's happening now with the drought in California and, and Nevada, is that there was a drought at the time that that's what originally drove up the the spike in prices. That uh, the hydroelectric uh, providers just weren't able to provide as much. Uh, of the of energy as as they might have that started the original uh, price spike and then others sort of jumped onto that and then the market manipulation from there. But Enron actually thought like these these spikes were okay and there's a you know infamous letter from uh, Ken Lay to uh, you know George W. Bush at the time saying that you know it's all going to work out and I, I would say that uh, you know there's a little bit of truth I feel like that. That that letter gets a lot of scrutiny for being like you know here here's here's evidence that they like the manipulation, and there's a little bit of truth to you know to that is that their idea is that sort of the free market there is a, something a, a there is a, a logic to that sort of free market approach of you know if you allow uh, companies to make money during these spikes that will encourage them to want to invest in these markets. As they'll make money during the spikes, and they'll account for the times when they're not making money or not making as much money when the, the demand isn't as high, um, and that will be good in the for them to make money is a good thing because it'll keep the market more liquid. There's more people investing in the market, and that you're not paying as much money for to borrow money to buy electricity. That. Um, that if if there aren't as many people willing to invest in uh, this these energy markets, then energy is more costly to borrow. That the interest rate on money, uh, you have to go to a bank or something like that, and they'll be like, "Oh, this is a lot of risk. I don't know how much it's gonna, 
uh, you know, that's involved. But if you have a lot more people, at, you know, investing, that there's uh, that the the there's not that much risk involved. That more people are willing to put in money, and you, you, there's more competition for that capital to invest in. Whether it's building a new plant, building uh, new sources of uh, of energy, or uh, running energy now and saving it. That's uh, and to be honest, I, I there's a lot to the energy market world that I will. It is it is a complex beast uh, with the, the advanced the, the numbers and uh, statistics available go very far, and uh, we've been able to dig into a lot of them. But it, it keeps going. Uh, if you go into you know sort of futures markets on energy and uh, derivatives, and it gets complicated. And, and to be honest, I think that's the, the the bigger criticism of Enron is that they thought. Uh, they would handle it all that it, just as long as they would deregulate the market and they would be the smartest guys in the room, like the book uh, about it. But I think it's even for them that they were very smart people. They were smart energy traders in there, but that it, they, a maybe they didn't also handle the media very well. And that B that, um, that the, some of the market manipulation, I don't know if they had totally had their hands on it either, either way. Even if you think that Enron is still sort of guilty of, you know, taking advantage of California taxpayers and things like that, one might think that, you know, that sort of outrage would extend to the current day. But, you know, you know, maybe it's apples and oranges. Who knows? Uh, I mean, I would say that uh, that those prices are, well, We'll say there's a lot going on there, and uh, we'll post the the link will be attached to this uh, podcast for uh, for additional details if you want to get into sort of the Enron scandal back then and uh, sort of the energy markets of California today. Uh, another aspect of uh, California is that's uh, I, that we have a story on. Well, actually, I'll lead it off by talking about I worked on a story for Bloomberg about uh, ballot initiatives. In California, and ballot initiatives in California are like something like no place else. In every other state, ballot initiatives are sort of a niche topic. Uh, they, they don't bring, they don't get a lot of attention. Every once in a while, maybe there's like a. Currently, there's been a number of like legalized marijuana ballot initiatives, uh, but they don't get a lot of attention. There's maybe one or two every year in a state uh, that are kind of important. Um, in California, no, they are the biggest thing because they bring in hundreds of millions of dollars in political funds uh, to push them on one side or the other. And they flood the airways. If, uh, it was just in California not long ago, and all the ads, uh, or a lot of ads on TV, are all about uh, the current one being this um, uh, gambling ballot initiative that would uh, regulate Native American casinos versus think more, bring in more online uh, uh, gambling. I'm not too certain about the details of that one, but it's similar to a lot of the other ones in that just tons of money, tons of influence. And it seems like almost the most democratic approach to uh, governing that rather than voting for politicians, you're voting for the law itself. Everybody gets a say. Um, The most egalitarian approach but what's interesting about the California ones is almost none of them pass. Um, 
all of this money and, you know, I think, you know, what somebody might say is that, well, the special interests have more money and therefore they throw enough money to convince everybody to vote against them. Well, I don't know if I, I believe that. Uh, but what I can say is that, uh, that that Bloomberg story goes into about how while there's so much money uh, happening, there's very few FCC filings uh, going on. Um, that all of these, uh, all the TV broadcasters, cable and, and broadcast uh, TV, have to file with uh, a list of usually it's like invoices and some other documents related to the ads that they show on TV. And uh, if it's a political ad like the ballot initiative one or, or sort of supporting a candidate, they have to sp- file special political file uh, uh, documents that say, you know, this we this ad was for this candidate and says this or something like that. For these ballot initiative ads, for the times that we looked at, there are very few of few filings in them. I don't know if FCC. I don't think the FCC. There's no evidence that the FCC like really went after them. Uh, to sort of scrutinize them, I don't. I think if even if there was a, a a fine or something like that, I don't think it would be very large. Um, it makes you wonder, like you know, all this money going into uh, TV ads and political marketing companies, you know, and the end result is nothing happening. It just seems like a boondoggle. It just seems, seems like a way to fund the political uh, marketing companies. And that they can use that money that they get in California, where there is no limit to how much can be spent on a ballot initiative campaign, and use it for all the other political campaigns uh, where uh, the money is is much more limited in other states, other municipalities, where uh, they have to work with a lot less. Um, and you know, there's been ballot initiatives on all kinds of subjects. Uh, there's one, you know, tax oil companies. Uh, one, you know, limit what uh, pharmaceutical drugs uh, uh, costs can be. And it's always these like super, you know, appeal to sort of general, you know, uh, you know, average Joe who's like, you know, oh, these oil companies are making too much. These pharmaceutical companies are making too much. And, you know, it's got that sort of aspect to, to it and they and they don't succeed. Um, there's a number of them were being... Uh, Helped run by this uh, this famous Hollywood producer, um, it was he was a, sort of a strange entity, and he was not just one ballot initiative, but a couple of them that he was sort of spearheading the movement. But the pharmaceutical one is was really interesting, and that sort of leads into investigative economic story. Is that AIDS Healthcare Foundation led uh, the the ballot initiative? I think it was about uh, seven years ago. Um, to, to limit the prices that pharmaceutical companies could charge for their drugs. You know, something that, you know, everybody uh, would might want to get, every average schmo would want to get behind um, that. They, I think it was limiting it to what the Veterans Administration was would uh, would charge, which seems like, you know, they, everybody would get behind that. And pharmaceutical manufacturers of association also threw their, their weight behind it uh, to stop it. Um, and so, you know, it was a battle of, of money going to both sides and, you know, was it 150 million or something like that on the, that sort of scale is being spent on each side. Uh, that's not on one side. That's like, on, uh, that's not on both sides. That's one side. And it, of course, failed. And, uh, and so AIDS Healthcare Foundation is a really interesting entity that um, the investigative economic story that was about them 
is a sort of getting into where they get their money from that they uh they get a lot of money through the 340b uh program which is a program managed by uh, HRSA, which is under HHS. Um, and what it does is it sort of requires that pharma- uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers provide drugs to uh, certain eligible entities at a severe discount. Um, so it's sort of a way to serve, you know, as a subsidy for like, oh, people in need that here you need it. You can't charge your full amount of, you know, $10,000 a pill. You have to charge $10 a pill. Uh, and as a way to sort of say, like, here's so that you, they can provide these drugs to people in need, uh, you know, um, and a lot of it is AIDS Healthcare Foundation, of course, a lot of it dealing with the AIDS medication, but hepatitis C medications. Uh, um, and and, and what, you, what you have to think about is that these those drugs, hepatitis C and uh, AIDS medications are those drugs, those, uh, the recent versions of those drugs are some of the most expensive drugs on the market you can ever think of. And when I say $10,000 a pill, it's, it's something on that level. It's, it might be thousands of dollars a, a bottle or something like that. What it, AIDS Healthcare Foundation does is they take this, the, these drugs and, um, and uh, they're making actually quite a, a decent amount of money for it. And, uh, so a lot of the story sort of gets into sort of like comparing them to CVS, that CVS actually only makes like sort of like less than 10% profit on all of their operations. Um, and CVS has a lot of overhead and that's why uh, that, uh, that they have stores to operate, they have employees to pay, they have, you know, goods to stock in the store and not to mention, you know, pharmacists who have to, you know, uh, dividing up the drugs and, and paying for the drugs itself. AIDS Healthcare Foundation, on the other hand, they operate very few actual, um, you know, office fronts that uh, they have offices, but a lot of it's mail order. They don't have many locations in general that um, that uh, that they there's not a lot to pay for. Um, And, you know, and how much money are they making by, you know, getting these drugs at a discount and possibly selling them? And what it would. When you look into, they're also supposed to provide a certain amount of healthcare. They're supposed to be, you know, uh, not just selling drugs, but like sort of uh, being doctors and uh, treating people. And that they do very little of what's uh, in their uh, in their books is seems to be related to providing, you know, healthcare. And so what they're doing with a lot of their money is they're running these uh, ballot initiatives. They're, I think they, there's actually two ballot initiatives that they're connected to. And uh, the other part of it is that uh, um, they are they spend a lot on lawsuits. They sue the pharmaceutical companies all over the place. And like the ballot initiatives, they kind of constantly lose. And it's like sue, suing the pharmaceutical companies over drug costs. Um there's a lot of stuff they get into, like or that's unrelated to pharmaceutical, like um, housing subsidies and things like that they, around Los Angeles. Uh, there's a whole other story um, that they're very involved with. Uh, um, I think it's you know sort of finding uh, housing for people who can't afford it, that sort of thing. That one I don't know as much about. Um, but it's sort of like, you know, what is this organization? Uh, what are they actually doing? They're getting so much, like, they're, they're making, like, on the average, it's more along the lines of, like, 40% profit compared to CVS's, like, 10% profit. 
so they're making tons of money and what are they doing with it? It's, it all seems kind of like nonsense, uh, but it's uh, kind of bizarre. And so you might say, oh, well, you know, that's fine for them. Uh, you know, maybe these lawsuits are nonsense, but who cares? Well, it leads into another uh, story that we were getting into about, uh, about California in general uh, spends so much money on pharmaceutical drugs that they're the Medi-Cal, uh, California's Medicare system, um, it's in the that the billions of dollars that they spend each year, um, like Harvoni, there's, there's an HHS um, Inspector General report in 2016 that talks about hepatitis C medication Harvoni. It was the largest uh, largest spending for the for their um, Medicare Part D catastrophic coverage, um, which was sort of like wow, that's. I mean that's a lot of money, and I you know it's you can't really tell how many. Uh, I, I, there, there's probably some numbers about dosages and things like that, uh, but that's like so much money for how many people have hepatitis C in, in California that that's the largest concern. Not like you know um, some of the more common conditions like uh, asthma or um, uh, diabetes or something like that, but hep how many people in California have hepatitis C that to warrant that, you know, you know, $7.4 billion. That's like such a crazy amount of money. And that, that the catastrophic drug coverage is, is 80% of all drug spending. So that's, that's like kind of huge. All, all of California's drug spending right there is, is sounds like it's going to this hepatitis C drug. Uh, oh, sorry. Seven point four billion is for Sovaldi, uh, and uh, which is another one, uh, another hepatitis C one. So, like, just hepatitis C drugs in general, just billions and billions of dollars. Uh, and that uh, it, prep being the other one, uh, the the sort of very popular. It's AIDS medication that you can just take uh, casually. It doesn't like. I think there's some details about how it doesn't have all the um, secondary effects of previous AIDS medication. So it's hugely popular, but it's also ridiculously expensive. Uh, and it's just billions and billions of dollars. The hepatitis C thing is all, is really interesting because it's sort of like, not only are the drugs expensive, but there's been this push that I don't think a lot of people know about. It doesn't get into the, uh, uh, like, um, in the public consciousness so much about, this push for hepatitis C uh, testing that um, that the CDC uh, really encouraged that um, that the CDC back in 2012 recommended that all baby boomers get tested for hepatitis C, and which is I you know I think if maybe if you don't know too much about the pharmaceutical industry you're sort of like well maybe it's worthwhile you know just in case because hepatitis C is a bad disease and you don't want to die early and it has bad side effects and things like that. But all baby boomers, that is a huge, huge population. And, uh, you know, the CDC director at the time, Tom, Tom Frieden said, you know, it should be on every baby boomers medical checklist, you know, just like getting your, your, uh, your, your heart checked, uh, you know, checked for Alzheimer's, you get checked for hepatitis C as well. Uh, but it's sort of like, uh, there's a lot of questions about the utility of all of this. Um, that, uh, that while everybody's getting tested and there's all these drugs to treat it, is it actually leading to, uh, 
you know, fewer people dying. Um, and that there's the reason why they, they push for everybody to get che- checked for this disease is because there's these new uh, blood testing uh, companies like Theranos, but other ones that do these, you know, fingerprint blood tests. Theranos, you know, fell, uh, collapsed in, in uh, you know, spectacular fashion. And they, that's because they were trying to test for all these uh, uh, diseases that I don't think there was enough blood in the fingerprint test that you could actually test for. And so they, what, would, they would take the blood and they would use these other tests uh, that were already on the market. Uh, their competitors test actually tested. But there actually are still other fingerprint blood tests that are out there. This Orquick one that came out in uh, 2010, um, the FDA approved of it. And then and that shortly after that, a couple of years after that is when the CDC said, everybody needs to get tested for hepatitis C. And so they had this, like this finger, fingerprint, uh, finger prick blood test makes it just so much easier and quicker for everybody. Everybody can just get tested just like that. Um, and there's, they're saying that there's an emerging epidemic of hepatitis C, although mainly uh, that, epidemic was surrounding baby boomers with the, the older baby boomers that, that they were encouraging to get tested and drug users. And so the sort of drug use and hepatitis C thing is sort of always been there that it's like needle drugs and, and sort of poor quality of life are connected to hepatitis C quite a bit. Um, and a lot of it was in Appalachia uh, you know, surrounding the sort of opioid epidemic, epidemic there. Um, but since uh, since the CDC has encouraged, uh, I mean, if you are you know sort of a regular needle drug user, the hepatitis C probably is a very concern, big concern. Um, although that's not a, you know a, a a large population anywhere. Uh, close to like what the baby boomer generation is. That's now that's a massive population. That means that's a big thing. So what why I'm bringing these these sort of population sizes and this encouragement to get everybody tested up is because it, there's a question about how useful it is to have everybody get tested. I mean, from if you're not paying any money to get tested and you feel like there's well there if there is a chance why not why don't why not everybody get tested. Um, if you're not paying for it yet, if you had to pay a thousand dollars for it, you'd be like, no, I'd, I'll take that chance. I don't think I'm getting, I'm not shooting up heroin. Why would I have hep- hepatitis C? Um, and that, uh, that, um, and, and the drugs say that they're, you know, it, it's a 97% viral response, which is effectively a cure. So, uh, what happens is that uh, there's there was a study in the Journal of Hematology that uh, that a lot of the people are, who are taking Harvoni and are cured of hepatitis C still have a higher mortality than the non-infected population. That these people are still dying earlier than the, everybody on average, uh, despite you know gotten hepatitis C and being cured of it. Um, you're saying like, well, if they're cured of it, are they dying from hepatitis C? Or it doesn't get, it doesn't really have a, a ton of detail about what they're exactly dying of. But it was saying is it gets into the details that well, these people that had hepatitis C, um, they had it's a they're a special population like that of you know heavy drug users 
that uh, or alcohol abuse is another one that seems to be uh, be correlated with some hepatitis C, like heavy alcohol use. Um, that that if you're in that cohort of people with those conditions, you're just likely to die sooner of for various other reasons. That alcohol leads to a higher mortality um, age. So it's not it's a to say that it whether you get cured of it doesn't sort of solve everything in your life, and that a lot of these th- issues related to hepatitis C are actually related to sort of these quality of life issues. And for everybody that's over 60 to get tested and buy expensive drugs for a disease that, you know, they may not have and may not actually help their, their lifespan all seems kind of useless. So then it also gets into the questions about the, the fingerprint uh, finger prick tests um, uh, that, uh, that there's a lot of false positives and that uh, that uh, that that it, that it, well, there are some questions about uh, whether how reliable they are. That uh, and this is, gets into sort of the Theranos issue that they don't pr- provide enough of a blood sample, and that they can be uh, not just uh, not just enough blood, but it can be contaminated with some other material that comes in from the skin, uh, lance capillaries, damaged tissue. Um, and that that was a lot of that was related to Theranos's technology. It's not necessarily related to the Oraquick one, but I mean Oraquick is you know doing something similar. And I mean these are sort of criticisms, outside criticisms. It, I don't think they're at the time the story we uh, published the story didn't have enough details on you know whether Oraquick um, you know had what had had these same issues that Theranos had, but. It is. There's reason to believe that that could be a concern. So I think that's a you know it seems like a fair criticism uh, that was being brought up. And then uh, there's another aspect of getting a hepatitis C test is that uh, it's a two part test that um, that you, there's a test for ant- antibodies and that that's a you know oh that's a decent sign that you might have hepatitis C but that it's actually recommended that once if you test positive for that that you get a secondary RNA test and that that's a more reliable test it's not as easy of a test that that you have as a test to confirm that you have active disease in your system rather than you had the disease it went away you're doing fine now um and you know how many people who are doing an at home fingerprint finger prick test uh, are going to do that follow-up RNA test? Well, maybe a lot, but maybe maybe not. Um, and, I don't, and there weren't numbers available for when we uh, published the story to get into that. And um, and it's sort of like all these questions of healthcare issues sort of gets into just like well, and the the high cost that California is spending on pharmaceutical drugs. If you live in California and uh, you look at your income statement, you'll look at uh, how much is withhold, withheld for Medicare each, uh, each pay period. And it's quite fascinating. This is uh, something that uh, I think it was uh, Ernst & Young or KPMG uh, uh, published some numbers about, uh, about each state, how much uh, the required withholding is for Medicare. And California is, is 33%, which is... Uh, 
I mean, that's as much as like, you know, federal taxes right there. That's a quite a, a astounding amount of money. I mean, it's withheld. So, you know, for some folks, they may get that money, some amount of that money back. There are some other places that have higher rates, uh, but it's, it's like Puerto Rico, um, uh, American Samoa. Uh, and there's some questions about why those places have such high and, but every other sort of mainland U.S. and Alaska and Hawaii, uh, the the states, not the the territories, why uh, and California is so far above everybody else, at least by ten percent. There might be some other states that have it in the twenties. Um, that's a lot of money. I mean, for all the the amount that people are uh, complaining about in taxes that they pay, what's the government doing with all this money and blah, blah, blah. Then you may want to take a look at, you know, what uh, the pharmaceutical money, uh, the money is going to pharmaceutical uh, companies. And, you know, no wonder why everybody's willing to vote on that ballot initiative. They, I guess they didn't uh, vote enough to, to, you know, restrict that, that those payments. But, um, it's a huge issue, and um, I think we actually may have some uh, other stories coming out uh, related to California, but uh, I think those are some big ones, and uh, I think some uh, interesting stuff going on in the states, beautiful states, and uh, we look forward to reporting more on it in the future.